Maturity is a part of life, and for some of us, it is a process that takes a little longer than we would like. My wife, I think, may at times still be waiting for me to get there. When are you going to grow up? And unfortunately for women, they usually have to wait a little longer for their male counterparts to mature. And then even it's even once they get to that point, it's kind of spotty at best. We have our moments of maturity. But in Scripture, God uses the example of physical growth and maturity to help us understand spiritual growth and maturity. And that's what we're talking about in this, well, really, chapters 12 through 14 of 1 Corinthians. Last week, we started into chapter 14, and the whole thrust of this passage Basically being, so you want to be mature. They start out chapter 12. Paul starts out saying, now about these spiritual things. Then in chapter 14, he picks up there again. You are desiring, earnestly desire the spiritual. And Paul uses this this example, this illustration of maturity and growth in his letter to the Corinthians. If you remember back in chapter 3 and verse number 2, he tells the Corinthians that he has fed them with milk, not solid food, because they were not ready for solid food. They were immature. They, they were still drinking s- simple milk like a baby would drink. And then he circles back around to this idea of maturity in chapter 14. And nestled right in the middle of our text that that Terry had read for us contains a string of three commands, all related to spiritual growth. If you'll notice in, in verse number 20, brothers or brothers and sisters, do not be children in your thinking, be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. Now, the overarching command of this chapter is what really, I think what we looked at last week, to pursue love in verse number one, to pursue God with everything, with all of your being. But it is from this pursuit that spiritual maturity follows. If you remember back in chapter two, Paul is giving spiritual truths to those who are spiritual and not everyone can understand these things. In chapter 2, verse number 16, he says, For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct, instruct him? But notice what it says, But we have the mind of Christ. And we're going to circle back around to this at the end. So in our pursuit of Christ, we begin to put on the mind of Christ and mature in our thinking regarding spiritual things. And Paul's instruction for mature thinking in chapter 14 is centered around the Corinthians' understanding of gifts that are given by the Spirit and their use in the church. This is his, this is his uh, issue that he's addressing that apparently the Corinthians had brought up to him at some other point and now he's writing back about this, this issue in the church. And so if we are to desire the spiritual and the gifts that are given by the Spirit, well then I think it's only logical that we need to have a better understanding of these gifts. And that's what I'll seek to do this morning. But the church of Jesus Christ is a, is a, is a church that is spiritual in nature. And so we are to be then a spiritual 
church. And last week we started out looking at our first point in this really threefold sermon of chapter 14. What makes a church spiritual? Last week was an, a spiritual church is an active church, active in pursuing love and striving to build one another up. This morning, a spiritual church is a maturing church. Be mature in your thinking about the spiritual. So we want to be active in our love, striving to build one another up, and this building up is happening through the gifts given by the Spirit. And Paul now, in chapter 14, singles out two specific gifts, both Spirit-given, but he's going to highlight the differences and how he wants us to think about these two gifts in particular. And by doing this, he's also, though, teaching us how we are to think about any of the gifts. So we're going to focus on two, but it will mature our understanding of gifts as a whole And with it, I think it'll give us a maturing desire to live as the church that Jesus has called us to be. So we have a lot to cover here. We're going to jump in uh, with point number one. Understand the background of these gifts. So in our maturing minds, we need to understand the background of these gifts. And so I start out this because I think it's important with this because it's important to understand or what the Corinthians would be thinking about these two gifts in particular. So we want to zoom out for just a little bit from 1 Corinthians before we zoom back in looking at these gifts of prophecy and tongues from the rest of Scripture. And so picture yourself in Corinth listening to the instruction being read from 1 Corinthians 14, and then what background understanding of these gifts would you have already had in your mind? What knowledge of these gifts would you have had as you're hearing this letter being read? And so we, I want to start with prophecy. Formerly, there was the role of a prophet, Many of you that have been around church have probably heard some of the different prophets uh, going all the way back into the Old Testament. You have Moses, you have Isaiah, you have Elijah, and you could go on and on. But what was, the, what was the job or the role of a prophet? They were to speak the word of the Lord. They were the mouthpiece for God. And so God would set, a, set apart men as prophets to Israel And they would deliver the message that the Lord gave them. Sometimes this would be foretelling. There would be future predictions of what was to come, judgment to come. We think about that. There are 16 16 books of the prophets or what we call the prophets in the Old Testament. And these men predicted uh, prophecies of judgment and destruction on both Israel and the surrounding nations. They obviously predicted the Messiah's coming. And they predicted the salvation of God's people, among many other things. Some of which we're still waiting for the fulfillment, the full fulfillment of. So prophecy could be foretelling, but prophecy could also be forthtelling, proclaiming God's truth, not necessarily predicting the future, but being a voice of God in a particular moment. I think that the example of Nathan and David helps us here. David in his sin against Bathsheba was totally in the wrong and God sent Nathan to tell David 
or to confront David with his sin. This is what you have done. He's not predicting anything, but he's, he's telling the word of the Lord to David, the king of Israel. But then just after that, what does he do? He says, because of your sin, the child that is in the womb of Bathsheba will not survive. And so he foretells as well in that example. The test of a prophet was whether or not what they said came true. That's an important thing. If what they said didn't come true, that was a sign that they were a false prophet. Not a true prophet of God. Fast forward now, and this is a very brief overview of, of the role of a prophet. It, it, you fast forward to the New Testament, you still see prophets among God's people, the church. You have Agabus in the, in the book of Acts predicting a famine in Acts 11.28, and then also predicting Paul's imprisonment in Acts 21.10. We come into 1 Corinthians, and 1 Corinthians chapter 12 tells us that just behind apostles were prophets as gifts to the church. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 20, we are told that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So the prophets were an important building block in, and a gift to the church in, in, in that early church and in the establishing of the church. And yet we come into chapter number 12 and we start to read that a person might prophesy, maybe even without having the formal role of a prophet. Chapter 11, we have general instructions given in verses 4 and 5. And in that instruction, it says, every man or woman who prays or prophesies. So the question then is, could an individual speak a prophetic word, but not function in the formal role of a prophet in the church? I, th I think the answer is yes. It appears that the Holy Spirit would give prophetic words to people within the early church, but not necessarily in the role of a formal prophet. So that's a very brief overview of prophecy going back into the Old Testament, leading up into 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Let's look at tongues. Tongues as a spiritual gift doesn't extend back into the Old Testament. But in verse 21, Paul will use an Old Testament example that we'll get to later. Well, so then we say, well, where else are tongues mentioned? In the New Testament as a spiritual gift. And this is where we need to turn our attention to the book of Acts. So if you're not there, flip over to Acts chapter 2. Because as we look at tongues here, we're not given a whole lot of information or examples about tongues it comes up three times in the book of Acts. Maybe four in Acts chapter 8 where the Spirit is given and there's an understanding that the Spirit is given, but tongues are not specifically mentioned there. So our, our instances where tongues are mentioned were limited to three times in Acts, beginning in Acts chapter 2. And I just want to read the first 13 verses for you. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. 
and divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were filled with the and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native tongue or language? Parthenians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, should have, pronounced, should have practiced that one before I said it, uh, and Pamphylia, that one too, Egypt and, and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, from Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in their own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocked and said, They are filled with new wine. We'll, we'll read a little bit more in just a second. But here you have the early followers of Jesus. We have 120 people. No, we know that from chapter 1 and verse number 15. We're filled with the Holy Spirit as Jesus had promised in Acts chapter 1 and verse number 8. And they began to speak in other languages, those that are listed in verses 8 through 11 that we just read. What were they speaking? Verse 11 tells us they were speaking the mighty works of God. And those that couldn't understand thought the people were drunk. It was just babbling sounds to them. But here, picking back up in, in our reading, Peter says in verse, verse 15 and following, they're not drunk, but instead, this is the fulfillment of the prophet Joel, of what Joel the prophet. So now we got a prophet in here that is foretold this gift of the Spirit and the speaking of tongues in Joel chapter 2 and verses 28 to 32. Here's Here's what Peter says, beginning in verse number 17, well, verse 16. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall, be, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I'm just going to stop there. Or I'll, let me just jump down to verse number 21. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Maybe you've heard that last phrase before. It comes from the prophet Joel. So, the, so all that was happening in Acts chapter 2 was a sign to the apostles and the early believers that the gospel of Jesus Christ was ushering in a new creation, the church, both Jew and Gentile. There's been a shift from national Israel to spiritual Israel. And that's where that phrase, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, becomes so important. This is a huge moment for God's plan for his people. The Holy Spirit is now indwelling and empowering a spiritual people. All this is new and groundbreaking to both the Jew and the Gentile. 
We could spend much more time here, but we're going to jump to Acts chapter 10 because this is the next time we encounter tongues. Just before these verses that we'll read, verses 44 to 48, we find that Peter, and Peter's the one that just shared the prophecy of Joel in chapter 2. Okay, so that, that came to his mind on the day of Pentecost. But he's still struggling with what all of this means. How, how does all this fit together? How do Jew and Gentile work? How does this work? God gives him a vision in chapter 10 and verses 10 through 16. And then he tells Peter to go meet the Gentile Roman centurion, Cornelius. And I want you to preach the gospel to him. And it's in verse 28 that Peter starts to connect the dots between the vision that he had and what God is doing now in the world through the power of the Spirit in building a spiritual people of both Jew and Gentile. God's vision or th- that he gives to Peter about this, he, he, he basically um, tells Peter to rise and eat all these different kinds of animals that were forbidden under the law. And then God tells Peter, listen, what I have called clean, you don't call unclean. And Peter realizes that he's not just talking about food here, but he's talking about the gospel is now to be preached and proclaimed to the Gentiles as well as the Jew. And so this vision given to Peter not only paves the way for us to eat bacon, amen, but made clear that the gospel is both for Jew and Gentile. So you come to verse 44. Let's read this together. Acts 10, 44. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised, that is the Jewish people, who had come with Peter, were amazed. Why? Because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. So they got the same thing happening in in Acts chapter 2. They were declaring the mighty works of God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then he asked them, Then they asked him to remain for some days. So the Spirit now has come on both the Jew and the Gentile. Fast forward again to Acts chapter 19. This is the third and final time that we see tongues used as an example, or really used at all, in the New Testament. Well, so... While, while Apollos is ministering, coincidentally, at Corinth, that's how it, we start off, verse number one, Paul comes to Ephesus and he finds some religious people who are following John the Baptist and waiting for the confirmation of the Messiah. Let me read verses one through six for us. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples and they said to him, or he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized you with the baptism of repentance, 
telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came, up, came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. So now you have those two gifts together. So in verse number five, these people, they believe in Jesus, they follow him in baptism, and the Holy Spirit falls on them, and they start to speak in tongues and prophesy. Speaking in tongues in Acts, what were given, was a confirmation to the apostles and those early church leaders of the multi-ethnic nature of the church as the people of God. In Acts chapter 15, we're not going to turn there, but Peter uses the conversion of, of Cornelius that we just read about or looked at chapter 10. He uses that and the pouring out of the Spirit on the Gentile to share with the elders in Jerusalem who would have been Jewish why they should be ministering to the Gentiles. This was a sign to us. The gospel is for all. And that's all we really have in Scripture regarding tongues. And that's a quick background of these two gifts that the believers of Corinth would have had. And we have the same scriptural background available to us. We also have 2,000 years of church history. Now, church history is not our authority. I want to be clear there. Scripture is our authority. But it doesn't mean that church history is unimportant or can't be used in our understanding of Scripture. And I'm going to simply, I just want to mention at least this, that one big part of church history that we must keep in mind, not only for, this, for these gifts, but for, uh, for other things as well, um, is the completion of the canon of Scripture. Like, we have all 66 books that have been inspired by God. We're not waiting for more. We're not missing any. Some haven't been included that shouldn't have. Following the closing of the book of Revelation, we have all the books that God has given. Now, it took a couple centuries for that, those these New Testament books to be compiled together and verified through the churches under the leading of the Holy Spirit. But the church had been testing these writings as they were passed around from church to church and recognized as letters and epistles given by the Spirit of God. And so by AD 397, the church formally had recognized that all the books that were inspired by God uh, and that, that would make up his word were complete. There's nothing else outstanding. And so what this means for us today is that there are no new revelations coming. There's no prophetic words with the same authority as Scripture. Everything is now subject to this book. It's why when someone like Joseph Smith says, I've received the word of the Lord and I've received tablets from heaven and the Book of Mormon is written down, we reject that because we have the fullness of the word of prophecy given to us already. And I think that is going to help us in some of understanding of some of the things we're looking at. Before we jump into our text in 1 Corinthians 14 and really dive into some of the language, and I, and I invite you to turn back there if you're not already there, it appears the Corinthians 
have a immature craving for tongues over and above other gifts. Some commentators have noted that other idolatrous religions, which we already know they've, they've been struggling with idolatry, eating meat in the temple of idols and other things. But some commentators have noted that other idolatrous religions would have chaotic babbling and chanting as part of their rituals. And this was seen as a spiritual experience. And so perhaps the church in Corinth was seeking to turn the gifts of tongues into something similar in an effort to be viewed by the culture and by themselves as spiritual. We, we don't know, but that's one thought of what they might have been struggling with. But they were, they, they were struggling with this and seemed to have an immature craving for this gift above other things. They, have a, they do not have a healthy focus. So let's, let's get into the text here in 1 Corinthians 14. And if you have any questions when we're finished, Adam will be up front to answer them. <laughs> I don't know why you're laughing. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so we looked at the background of these gifts. Number two, let's understand the value of these gifts gifts from our text. Paul wastes no time tipping his hand as to which of these two uh, gifts he's going to favor. Okay? He says in verse number one, earnestly desire the spiritual, especially that you may prophesy. Okay, so to to, to begin to understand the value of these gifts, we're going to need to, first of all, consider the audience, verses 1 through 5. We need to consider, I want you to earnestly desire to prophesy. Why? Verse number 2, for one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him because he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Then one who speaks in a tongue builds up him, or the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets. Why? So that the church may be built up. So we want to consider the audience of these gifts. Tongues. Tongues, he says, look, a person in verse number two that's speaking in tongues is not speaking to men, but he's speaking to God and uttering mysteries in the Spirit. And at first glance, I, I read that anyway and thought, well, that seems kind of strange. Don't we want to speak to God? But notice what he says in verse number four, why, why, why he, there, there's a little bit of a negative here, if, if there, anything, this only builds up your self. So the value of the gift is, isn't in the gift itself, but its effect on the church. We're not just taking a gift in a vacuum and saying, this is, this is valuable. No, it's, it's only as valuable as the audience it's for the audience that hears it. You contrast that with prophecy in verse number three. Prophecy is spoken to people for their upbuilding, their encouragement, and their consolation. So the value in prophecy is that it's building up everyone, not just yourself, 
There are no self-centered gifts given by the Spirit. It's always for the building up of one another. They all have this aim of building up others in mind. Which is why he gets to verse number 5 and he says prophecy has, is greater. Unless there's an interpreter. So, so he even puts that in there. Look, if you, can, if you have an interpreter, then it adds value to this gift because it builds the church. And so now our understanding of these gifts is starting to take shape. The value is not for self, but for others. So we consider the audience. Again, we're, we're flying through these verses in a sense. Secondly, though, we want to consider the illustrations. Verses 6 through 12, Paul gives us some illustrations. Verse 6, he says, Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues... How will, I, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if, your tongue, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air." There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. So Paul starts out, let me give you an example about myself. Even if it's Paul that's speaking in tongues, I mean, if there was anybody that I would want to hear from, Speaking to to this church, let it be the Apostle Paul. I mean, other than Jesus Christ himself, let it be Paul. But Paul says, even if I come speaking in a tongue, it doesn't benefit you unless what? It's accompanied by revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching, something that you can understand Verses 7 and 8, he talks about musical instruments, the flute, the harp, the bugle. And he says, look, musical instruments communicate to us. But if we don't know what the sound is supposed to, is, and it's in, indistinguishable, then we're not going to be ready for battle or what, what, whatever. Okay, in our country, if, we, if somebody started playing the Star Spangled Banner, there's a natural reaction to that where we would probably stand but if it's just notes on a keyboard, doesn't mean anything. Has no value. Verses 10 and 11, we've got the languages of the world. You travel to a foreign country and they will speak a language and it has meaning. But if you don't know the meaning, it has no value to you. In the past, we've, our family has enjoyed watching The Amazing Race. I don't know if you've ever watched that where these teams travel around the world racing against each other. And there's some humorous moments, or I, you know, frustrating if you're in those moments, where they might be in a cab or they're trying to find directions and nobody speaks English. And they're trying to navigate their way and you can see it. They start to get angry and frustrated. The people know what they're saying. 
If there was someone that knew the language there with them, they would know what they're saying, but because they don't know the language, it has no value to them. And that's where Paul says in verse number 9, Instead, it's the same if you speak in a tongue that is unintelligible. It would be as useless as speaking into the air and the air just carrying those words away before it ever reached the listeners. So in verse number 12, he says, instead, I want you to strive to build up the church. And so these are some illustrations Paul uses to help us see the value in these gifts. Number three, though, we want to also consider the mind. Verses 13 to 19, Therefore, in light of what I've just said, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will, also, I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. So what it, he starts off, verse number 13, saying, if you receive this gift of tongues, I want you to pray, and we have a command here, okay? Pray to interpret. Because tongues in and of itself is not going to help us fulfill verse number 12, striving to build up the church. And really, Paul's practical outworking of striving to build up the church is to pray. We're not going to build the church up. We're not going to build one another up in our own wisdom, in our own knowledge, in, a, in our own spirituality, so to speak. We go to the Lord in dependence on prayer. If you want to build up others, stay dependent on the Spirit. And he says, pray for a complimenting gift. Because private spirituality doesn't help anyone. If we want to be spiritual, who do we need to be connected to? The Spirit of God. Verse 14, speaking of prayer. For if I pray in a tongue... So it's even possible to pray in tongues, but there's an important thing we need to notice. When Paul's talking about this, he, he starts to bring in the aspect of his, his mind. Paul isn't looking for an out-of-body spiritual experience. Or, yeah, I'm just floating on cloud nine. I don't really know what's happening. I just, just, just feel it. No, we are both physical and spiritual beings, and these two things are interwoven together. And so Paul, if I could summarize, says, in my worship, I want to engage both my spirit and my mind. True worship of God engages both the mind and the heart. The Christian life isn't hyped up emotionalism. But it's, if I could just go home feeling good, feeling like I've, 
I've had this experience. Rather, it is prayer-filled engagement with God on a spiritual, emotional, and intellectual level. Worship engages us spiritually and mentally. But he doesn't linger long on himself. In verse 16, he's right back to thinking about how this builds up the other person that may be listening who is otherwise not being built up if it's, if it's just about us and our experience. And then in verses 18 and 19, Paul says, look, I am thankful for tongues and I've experienced this myself. But I, notice how he ends here, I'd rather speak five words. How much can you really say in five words? But Paul's, he's using exaggeration here. I'd rather speak five words with my mind that you can understand that would build you up than 10,000 words in tongues that nobody understands. And it's at this point we come to where we started in verse number 20 that Paul says, stop being children in your thinking, mature in your thinking. It's no accident that he's talking about engaging your mind in worship. And then he says, mature in your thinking, mature in your mind. The Christian life then is growing not only in experience, but in your knowledge of God as revealed in his word. We have to move on. Verses 21 to 25, our last thing we want to do is then consider the purpose of tongues. In the law, he says, verse 21, it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people And even then, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders and unbelievers enter, will they not say to you that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, He is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. So Paul starts out in the law. This is not talking about uh, the law as we think first five books of the Bible, but it's actually from the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 28 and verse number 11. And in that text in Isaiah, we don't have time to turn there, but God is bringing judgment on Israel for their sin. And they will soon fall to the Assyrians. And the language of the Assyrians will be heard by Israel, even in Jerusalem, in their midst. And it is a sign to Israel when they hear this foreign language that they are under God's judgment. That's what it's a sign. And so in verse number 22, where it says tongues are a sign, it's not a positive sign. Like if you speak in tongues, unbelievers will hear and they will respond positively in faith. It's a negative sign. So tongues are not a means of evangelism. 
And he even says in verse number 23, what? If the whole church gathers and all of you speak with tongues, I think, again, exaggerated language, everyone speaking in tongues, what's the result? Well, it's the same as in Acts chapter 2. These people are nuts. They're drunk. This is utter confusion. And instead of being a help spiritually, it is actually a detriment to the outsiders and unbelievers. But it is, it is a sign that they are under God's judgment. They are outside of the people of God. You contrast this with the purpose of prophecy. He says, which is for believers. And you look at verse uh, number 24 again. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. Now, at first glance, this sounds like prophecy is, for, um, is actually for, for unbelievers. Like, okay, there's an outsider here. There's, there's an unbeliever mentioned. And they're coming in and they're hearing this prophecy. And so wouldn't prophecy be assigned to unbelievers? We'll get to that in just a second here, what I think he's saying here. But I, I do want us to notice th the word all is used three times. If all prophesy, the unbeliever, the outsider is convicted by all and called to account by all. So everybody in the body has a positive role in ministering to that person. And we're going to get to that and we, we, when we get into uh, verse 26 and following the role that we have, we all have in the body. But you see the result. The result is that the hidden things of his heart are made visible to himself. He sees his sin and he falls down in worship of God. Prophecy is for those who believe or will believe that have been set apart by God upon hearing the gospel truths. That's why I think Paul means by a sign to those who believe, those who already believe or those who will believe when they hear the gospel truths. And here's the irony in all of this that Paul points out in the last phrase. What will they do? He will worship God and declare, God is really among you. You guys are really spiritual because it drew me into worshiping God, not just feeling an emotion. So here we have the Corinthian church. They wanted people to think God is really among us. We're a spiritual people. We're a spiritual church. And they were striving after gifts that they thought would demonstrate that. But in reality, if they would just yield to the Spirit of God and let Him work in and through them, the result would be in actuality that God is really among them. And what we see here is that in the body, the word of truth in the gift of prophecy, is of most value. It is the proclamation of the word that changes hearts. Isn't this picture that Paul gives us a, a bit of a healthy church indicator? 
I mean, don't we want verse 25 to be the reality for everyone that would come in our midst and be a part of our times of worship? People being drawn into new and deeper worship of God with the heart and the mind through the proclaiming of the word of God. That's what we want as a church. This is what the gifts are designed to do. Now, Paul is not done talking about these gifts, but we're, we're going to talk about them in, in two weeks. I want to conclude, though, just asking really the question, so, so how do we think about this passage today? What do we do with this? I'm going I'm to give us two, two things and talk through two things that, that I think help us today. Um, number one, it helps us evaluate current practice. Practices that we see in our culture, in churches, maybe in our own lives. And what I think we need to do here is pull our knowledge of chapter 8 into this conversation. Remember chapter 8? Meat offered to idols, and some have liberty to eat and some don't, and there's these gray area issues that we can give much grace on for people that may see things a little bit different. So there's room for grace. However, there are some things that I think are black and white that we we can see clearly. This passage is helpful in evaluating what we see taking place in our world today related to prophecy and tongues. The elections are over. But I don't know if you've noticed, I've noticed in recent years, self-proclaimed prophets that travel with some candidates. And they make these prophecies at the political rallies. And I've, I mean, I have maybe some background in thinking through that, but maybe you've wondered, what do we do with these people? What are we supposed to make of them? They claim to be prophets. Well, we evaluate through the lens of Scripture, and we ask ourselves, well, how is this gift used? We notice right away in in that example, I'm just giving you an example that they're not using this gift. Uh, It's not tied to the the church, which was where the gift was to be used, what the gifting was for. Many of them as well make predictions about candidates that don't come true, which should raise red flags right away in our mind because if they're not coming true, then it's not from the Lord. My belief, and, and, I, and I'll just share with you a little bit uh, on this, and we can, of course, talk further um, about prophecy today, that it appears the role of the prophet was foundational to the church. And as the church took root and was established, and as the canon of Scripture was complete, that role of prophet has passed. And so... Regardless, though, any word of prophecy today would be proclaiming truth that is consistent with Scripture. We have the completed word. So all things are subject to this authority. In Peter's second epistle, in chapter 1, verses 19 to 21, he points to Scripture as being the surest word of prophecy that we have. As for tongues, we have sufficient information to evaluate things that we uh, see around us. But you're going to need to sort through some of these things yourself. I'll share 
where I lean. I lean towards tongues being, being an earthly language like we see in Acts, some of which, because that are the, those are the only scriptural examples that we have. In chapter 13 and verse number 1, where Paul says, by speaking the tongues of men or of angels, but have not love, I think he's using hyperbole. He's using exaggeration. Like, if I could have all faith to move mountains, even if I could speak in the tongues of angels, that's the way I read that, but others don't. So we're not going to put God in a box. But I do think there's one point of note in the text that we should mention Even though these are both gifts of the Spirit, Paul clearly prefers prophecy over tongues. In fact, by the time you get to the end of this chapter in verse 39, Paul says just that. Earnestly desire to prophesy. This isn't saying that one of these gifts is less important to the body. Remember how Paul describes the body in chapter number 12? All parts of the body are indispensable. They are they, they are both of value. And I, I just point that out here because some within Christianity would hold tongues up as a primary gift that we should all be striving for because it, it, it somehow reveals that, that we, we have the Spirit. But that's not, doesn't seem to be what Paul's saying here. And I share all of that and, and even a little bit, you know, here's my perspective not, not to make you feel comfortable in what you believe or to get you upset. Or, again, there's room for grace in this conversation. And I, but I share that with you, even understanding that the temptation is to focus on these details of the text and miss the bigger picture of this text, which is what I think this passage ultimately helps us do, and that is it helps us to mature Christian thinking. You see, what this passage ultimately does for us, be mature in your thinking about spiritual things. We can easily get fixated on something that gives us an emotional feeling. It puffs us up in pride, but has little to do with spirituality. Do we have the gift? Do we have the right music? Do we have the right lighting? Are the programs relevant to our culture? Whatever the case might be, brothers and sisters, let us be mature in our thinking. All that goes on in this church ought to be done to build the body up in true spirituality. In our decisions to select leaders, start ministries, selecting curriculum for our kids' programs, organizing youth activities, selecting worship songs, whatever it is, all of it must be done with the goal of building up this body in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So pray to that end. Pray that you would be used to cause people to worship God. A maturing church will desire the spiritual gifts that build up others and cause them to worship God more and more. And look, I find Paul's commands difficult at times. I don't always desire this because you know what? I get afraid of what it might mean. It's going to take me outside of my comfort zone. Remember, remember God comes to Moses and says, I want you to go back to Egypt to deliver my people. And Moses comes up with all kinds of excuses. He's afraid. Like Moses, I think we get afraid of what God might call us to do. And instead of desiring and pursuing these gifts that would build the body, we, we kind of recoil, we step back from, in, 
from spiritually engaging the body. And in doing this, we show our childlike thinking regarding the church and our role in it. I mentioned at the beginning, and we are wrapping up, I promise. I want to circle back to something at the beginning. To mature in our thinking, we must put on the mind of Christ, which will happen as we pursue him. How does Jesus think about his church? Have you ever asked that question? Jesus sees his church as a husband would see a beautiful bride on the wedding day. Not perfect, but she is his. And he is at work to make her into a glorious bride without spot or wrinkle. He gave his life for the church when he died for her. He said to Peter, you are Peter and upon this rock I will do what? I will build my church. He doesn't promise to build anything else. The church is his focus. And throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus never used his power, his giftedness. I know that, and that's not the same thing, but understand what I'm saying. His, he never used his abilities to benefit himself. It was always to build others up. He's building his church right now. He's building this church as a spiritual people to be his hands and feet in a broken world. He's building us into a spiritual bride that will one day be presented to him for an eternal marriage. Is this how you view the church? Do you see the other members as people for whom Jesus gave his life and is working to bring them to spiritual maturity? Is your prayer, God, use me in whatever way to build up this church? A maturing mind is thinking more and more like our Lord. This is what Paul is calling us to. Be conformed to the image of Christ. You have the mind of Christ. Now think like that. Maybe words that sum up how he thought can be found in Mark 10.45. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life of ransom for many.